Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am Rick Snyder, one of the co-hosts of this not-for-profit show that's dedicated to human, digital, and social transformation. And um, this is uh, an unusual show where I don't have my co-host, Af Maholtra, with us. Um, Af right now is... um, We'll have very, I think we'll have very exciting news in the next uh, week or two, whenever he may come back. It's for him to share, so I'll wait for that moment. But Af, wishing you all the best in this moment with you and your family. Um, and so today, we're going to be getting into a really amazing topic around collaboration. We have one of our fantastic uh, guests, Darcy Winslow, a, a return guest. Um, and for those of you who didn't catch the show, I, I want to say we, it was back in July or August of 2020 that Darcy was on our show. I don't remember the exact date, but um, Darcy, we're so excited to have you back again. Well, thank you, Rick. And um, just for a little background, uh, Darcy, you have an incredible story. Um, I first learned about you through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jennifer Menke. Hello, Jennifer. And um, the amazing work you're doing at the Academy for Systems Change. And also, of course, your former um, incredible history with Nike um, and being literally the leader to, to start the women's division, women's footwear and apparel division at Nike in a time where that was not easy to do. And, and all that you had to overcome and listen to your intuition and fight the good fight to make that happen and coordinate everything and, and influence and all the things that you had to do to, to create and, and, you know, the women's division and even proving, I remember you sharing this, like even proving how at the time the male dominated culture didn't get that women are not just little men and girls are not just little boys or, um, and, and that actually there's the, the biomechanical differences of bone density and structure and all the things that go into, um, the differences of, of a footwear and apparel and what have you. Well, officially, welcome back. And uh, lo- why don't we start with, um, you know, we were talking about some of your history at Nike, but also w- what you're doing at Systems Change, Academy for uh, Systems Change, and then, and then some of your new exciting um, initiatives that you've launched recently. Uh, but I think one thing, that, one of the threads that I followed in your career is really being a voice for women's leadership and really being an incredible role model for women's leadership. And... One of the things I know we want to talk about today is around collaboration. And can you share a little bit more about why collaboration is such an essential ingredient? And it's been, I think, missed in the competitive male-dominated cultures uh, uh, that have led for so long. Tell, tell us a little bit about what women's leadership has to share with the world and what we need to be hearing around collaboration. Sure. It is very near and dear to my heart. And collaboration, I really learned the importance of that, um, you know, in in many different stages of my career. But when I was working in sustainability in the early days of sustainability and really understanding the complex challenges that we faced, um, the realization that there was no way we could solve these problems within Nike alone. And we had to learn to collab with our, our uh, certainly our suppliers, everyone in the value chain, but ultimately we had to figure out how to collaborate with our competitors. 
And that was antithetical. It's antithetical in most corporations, but really working in that pre-competitive uh, space to solve issues around, you know, the use of chemicals, um, the use of water. And it was a big mm. breakthrough for us. And so that was one big lesson in collaboration. And yes, I, in my experience, as, we, as I reached out to other companies to engage, the majority of them were women. Hmm. And um, that was also true in the early days of sustainability as well. And as you probably know, uh, you know, looking at brand archetypes or archetypes in general, there's the archetype of the caregiver or the nurturer. And in the early days of working around the women's business and sustainability, often we were coming at that work through the language of a caregiver or a nurturer. Mm -hmm. And Nike's archetype, and it's been written about quite a bit, is that the hero uh, archetype? And so it's all about command and control, sovereignty being right. And the caregiver and the hero, uh, they often can't speak to each other. So it was another lesson in how do you step back and really understand the culture um, and the issues that you're trying to address and to bring the language, um, translate the issues into the language that they can hear uh, and acknowledge. You know, and the other. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I'll say about collaboration, women are natural systems leaders, women are natural collab collaborators. And I think that is the shift that we're seeing worldwide in the type of leadership that we need these days, collaborators and systems thinkers. Mm -hmm. What is it about women that do you think that is where that's more of a natural propensity to be tuned into the system, systemic thinking, relationships, I mean, we all kind of know that. We all know these archetypes. But do you have a sense of where you think that comes from and how they can, how women actually, it's their time to lead and remind us all that we're part of the same ecosystem? Yeah, I think there's differentiating. These are generalizations. Incredible men who are great collaborators and great systems thinkers. Uh, one of the qualities is vulnerability here mm. to be vulnerable and not have all the answers. And I think that is a big difference that society, you know, has kind of demanded. You must have the answers as a leader. Mm -hmm. Knowledge that you don't have all the answers, um, issues that we face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Um, that's something, so as an executive coach, one thing I, I get to work with a lot of different cultures and organizations, and I'm thinking of one of them right now that is very male dominated. I think they have one woman on their whole executive team. Uh, the rest is male and it's very much, and they, they even talk about this, that it's a lot of hero ball culture where they're all looking for that signature win and getting the signature win for each individual and that's how they get promoted and that's how they get recognized and celebrated in the culture is for each person to be that hero. And there's not a lot of, right. um, 
there's not a lot of support or recognition for being more collaborative, cross-functional team dynamics, all those things. And now they're starting to see an impact for that. They're starting to see a negative, you know, people are leaving the poor retention numbers. People are leaving. Um, if you're not a top 10% performer, you're not getting the attention. And so it's interesting to see how that's still happening in 2021. And yet there's more consequences now that people are willing to leave those cultures for other companies, um, even if they have to sacrifice a little bit of pay to do that. The sports analogy of the hero. Uh, and if you look at the artifacts within an organization, uh, if we take Nike as an example, you know, Jordan, LeBron, Tiger, mm -hmm. you know, all these one name heroes. And if you, if, and if you, let's take football or basketball as an example. If you think about a championship game versus an all-star game, in a championship game, not every player on that championship team is a hero. And if you think about watching all-star games are just horrible to watch. Yeah, that's well said. Is that, um, and I've seen, yeah, all-star all -star games are boring, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they're totally boring right like you see these guys they're all great heroes but they don't know how to play together they don't know how to pass the ball they're all trying to they're all trying to compete against each other on the same team that's and right that's how often right. do we see that in organizations right where that there's there's comp competition amongst each other even though they're they're they have the same mission together that's right and that was one of the the challenges that you know i think women uh, experienced. Not only were they competing with men to move up in the system, they were competing against women. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're starting to see things change. And how do we, and that's certainly what uh, one of our missions with the Magnolias, which we can get together, how do we support women as leaders to lift their voices, to build the confidence and the support system? Um, because that we believe that is the type of leadership that is needed these days. Let's go there next, actually. And one of the things about your career, which is fascinating, which I love, is you've been on the cutting edge of so many of uh, where we need to move next as a culture, whether it's sustainability or women's leadership or collaboration. Um, you've always been on the cutting edge since I've heard about you and, and read about you and researched you. Um, and so tell me the latest of what has your attention and where your energy is going toward around women's leadership and Magnolia Moonshot 2030. Yes. Well, if I can maybe share the, the initial idea of Magnolias, uh, within the Academy for Systems Change, we run a fellowship program. And um, about two and a half years ago, during our second cohort of fellows, we were at our second in-person gathering and the fellows from are from all over the world. And they were sharing their story, uh, their challenge, their systems challenge and what their learning edge was, what, you know, where they needed support. And one of the leaders uh, was the sustainability director at Heineken, Mexico, young, beautiful woman. And uh, in a very macho country, in a very macho industry and a very macho uh, corporation. 
And her CEO had just been promoted to CEO of Heineken Asia. And he was her support, her champion for this work in sustainability. And as she shared her story, at the end of it, she became very emotional. Mm. And I pulled her aside and I said, you know, what's up? And she said, I have no support for the work I'm going, I, I do. I don't know how I'm going to accomplish that. And I, I told her, I said, well, damn it, I have a support system. Having been in that work and, and the women that I've been collaborating with ever since. And so the idea was to uh, start another cohort focused on women leading sustainability in corporations around the world. And uh, as I brought in other women in my network, and we talked about this idea over time, it evolved to where we are today. And our focus areas are the climate crisis and women's leadership, the climate crisis, achieving the UN sustainable development goals and really focusing on social justice, racial uh, equity, and the intersection of all these. We call it bridging the three divides. Mm. And our idea is that we don't want to compete with other women's groups. There are many out there. We want to collaborate. Mm. We want to lift their to hear what they're doing so that we can inspire other women to get engaged, can cross-pollinate ideas such that we can really accelerate our progress against, you know, achieving the climate goals. And we can talk about that a little bit later. That's a real challenge, uh, the SDGs and equity. Mm -hmm. So that's Magnolia Moonshot 2030. Yeah. And, and then how long ago did that launch? Well, the idea what launched about two and a half years ago. Um, we launched our website and went public about four months ago. And tonight on Clubhouse at 5 p.m. Pacific time, mm -hmm. we're going live with our first conversation around uh, the intersection of climate and social justice. And one of our magnolias, one of our brilliant magnolias, she's a professor at Michigan State University but she's also a contributing um, researcher and scientist uh, to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in Africa. Mm -hmm. And he's gonna lead us in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so five o'clock. Okay, and yeah. five o'clock at the clubhouse today. That's right. Okay. So please t tune into that to get um, more direct experience of Magnolia Moonshot. And, and once again, 2030, can you say a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so 2030, well, let me back up. When I was at Nike uh, and I set our sustainability goals in 1999, I set them for 2020. So 21 year olds, because these are really complex challenges. And <clears throat> we just finished 2020 and it was very exciting to see how much progress has actually been made on those goals. So as we were looking for the time span um, you know, we wanted a reasonable time to hold our feet to the fire to see what we could actually accomplish. And 2030 also aligns with the targets for most of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And also looking at climate, this really is the decade for change. If we don't accomplish the goals around achieving a certain um, increase in global temperature, atmospheric temperature and decreasing our uh, carbon emissions, 
we won't be able to stop the train. And, you know, there's arguments that we've already surpassed our ability to do that. So 2030 um, and, and just engaging women. And I can talk about some of the cohorts that have already started and been inspired by um, Magnolia Moonshot. But think about where women who are 20, 22, 18 today, mm -hmm. where will they be in 10 years? You know, the leaders in organizations, government, um, and how to really support that. So you have a huge uh, youth outreach right now to try to connect with those younger women leaders that are just getting interested in these conversations and are getting involved and active and what have you. Is that right? Well, we are engaging all ages of women, but what's been so inspiring is um, a cohort of 14 to 18 year old girls led by one of the fellows uh, in the academy, the second cohort of the academy in Pakistan started this cohort. It's called This Is Us, Discover. And it's 14 to 18 year old girls who come together, they're mentored, they have mentors, uh, but they create projects and do the research on things like uh, gender violence, child marriage. This is in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Financial literacy, just bring them into the formal economy. And then what we'll be starting in about two weeks, uh, it emanated out of the Netherlands, but it's also a cohort of 14 to 18-year-old girls um, who will go through a six-month program focusing on personal mastery uh, for mm. their own growth and development. Uh, they will create a project around climate mm -hmm. and they will have mentors. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to be one of them, but it's called Our Future. Mm. So those were both early inspired cohorts uh, for the, from the Magnolias. But as we get going, we'll be putting out a call for proposals for women, girls, around the world to start a project in one of these areas, climate, SDGs, or justice. And our goal is to select those and then support them both financially and with mentorship. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. Um, it's really heartening to hear that actually, that um, your organization is really literally contributing to the next generation. And of course, women of all ages too, um, but just how important that is to also reach that you know, the new generations, our leaders of tomorrow and supporting and mentoring. Because I see so often we don't have enough mentoring going on between generations that are consciously mentoring in these mm -hmm. ways. And so it's really exciting to hear that. How, how is um, Magnolia Moonshot being funded itself? Um, are you, do you have services out there and that like consulting services and those kinds of things? Or how, how do you guys get funded? How do you all get funded? So we are not, so right now we're still a project of the mm. Academy for Systems Change. Okay. Um, but our, our backbone operation expenses are so low. Mm. All the founders of the Bagnolis are showing up on our own time because wow. we believe in this so much. And so we've got communication support. Beyond that, we're getting sponsorship from okay. different organizations and from individuals. And interestingly enough, when we went live, uh, our first several contributions came from men in honor mm -hmm. of their mother, their wife, their daughter, their sister, uh, because they too see the value in this. Um, so 
it's it's been very wide ranging, but no, we we want to create a platform. We want to create um, something where there are no barriers to ent- enter the conversation. Mm. Uh, so it's not a typical nonprofit consulting. Mm-hmm. We want everybody engaged in the conversation. Sounds like true collaboration. I love it. <laughs> Even in structure. Right, right. Yeah. And so one of the things I was really interested in talking about that we discussed earlier was around the three divides. And you had mentioned that that's really one of the biggest initiatives of Magnolia Moonshot 2030 is looking at the three major divides that we are facing as a human race on this planet in our relationship to this planet. And I would love for you to speak a little bit about what are the three divides and what can we start to do and what are the conversations we need to be having right now uh, in these different sectors that we're facing? I was first introduced to this concept of the three divides by Otto Scharmer, <clears throat> excuse me, Otto Scharmer, and he characterizes them as the ecological divide, and I'll come back to each of these in just a minute, the ecological divide, the socioeconomic divide, and the spiritual divide. And that coupled with um, a book that I read about the same time Otto started talking about this is uh, The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding. Mm. And if we step back and look, well, let me tell you a little bit about how this came up in the Magnolias. When we first came together and started having discussions around what is the breadth and depth of where we want to focus our attention, uh, about a third of the Magnolia founders were very, very ecological divide, the climate crisis that we absolutely have to start there. And the other two will come along. Another third said, no, we have to address the socioeconomic, the justice, the injustices in our societies first, because if we don't start there, Mm -hmm. then we can't address the climate crisis or the spiritual divide. Mm. And then the other third said, no, if we don't address the spiritual divide and begin shifting our own consciousness and shifting the paradigms that we hold, we can't address the others. So we had the three divides in our own group. And so our work is to really start to bring these together and to show how they're interconnected. Mm -hmm. And thus, you know, the first conversation we'll be having tonight, the intersection between climate and social justice. Mm. But if you break down each of those divides, the ecological divide, you know, just very simply put is we are living beyond the natural resources that the planet can provide. Mm -hmm. We surpassed using one earth's worth of natural resources in 1980. Right now we are using approximately 75% more or 1.75 earths worth of natural resources. And there's only one earth. So then going to Paul Gilding's work in the Great Disruption, what contributes to that number? And there are three elements. One is population growth. So we're headed to you know 10 billion plus by 2050. So if we use that time frame as the benchmark, um, population growth is growing about 0.7 percent per year. Hmm. So just mark that over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, technology is the other piece. 
So the investments in technology that address climate crisis, we're actually only getting about 70% return on that investment. We have the technology, but we're not using it to its full extent. Hmm. And then if you look at the third piece, it's affluence or lifestyle or consumption. Mm -hmm. And in developed countries, you know, we have, um, for the most part, a very good lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And our consumption patterns uh, are really pushing that number up because in developing countries, they strive for our lifestyle. Uh -huh. Consequently, and, right. and that's growing two and a half percent per year GDP. And that is what is actually, actually tanking our ability to slow this train. Mm -hmm. So if you add up all those numbers, uh, they all estimate and scientists estimate that by 2050, we would be using the equivalent of five to seven Earths worth of natural resources. Wow. The physics don't work. We will see ecological collapse in the ecosystems that we rely on. So that's why that is so important. And then in the uh, socioeconomic divide, I mean, we see you know, the inequities in countries, between countries, intergenerationally, and you know, I'll give you just one quick example. Uh, the food system, there is plenty of food to feed the almost 8 billion people, but it's how we've designed our global system and the distribution system. Over a billion people have too much food, over a billion have too little food. Wow. So that's just one example of the inequities. And then I'll finish with the spiritual divide. And, um, you know, that is manifesting in so many different ways right now, but the World Health Organization estimated several years ago that, and all these numbers are moving in the wrong direction, um, that three times as many people died every year of suicide and stress-related illnesses than died of homicide and war combined. And now if you layer in COVID, uh, climate traumas, you know, from natural disasters, uh, these are real issues. And in all of these, women suffer more mm. than men. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a very, it, you know, it's a tough conversation to have. But, you know, as systems leaders, you have to accept your current reality in order to be able to set the vision for the future and how are we going to get there and who do we need to bring into the conversation? You know, it's when I hear these numbers and these stats, they're startling and shocking. And I also have a some kind of background sense of just like almost resignation on one level over like, how can we really do this? Like it's such a big task we all need and we need all hands on deck we need all right. collaborators to the conversation how, how have you done that in that you've been hip to sustainability for decades now and been leading the cause for sustainability and yet you see the bleak numbers and how they continue to get more bleak as the years go by how do you maintain your sense of conviction positivity um, that you can make an impact given the trend doesn't look good there's like a negative snowball effect and a lot of people still are not getting it. 
uh, even though a lot more people are getting it than ever before, and it's more conscious than ever before, for sure. How, how do you maintain that sense of equanimity for yourself, uh, given all of that? Yeah, well, I've crashed several times, but, um, you know, just a quick story that kind of uh, showcases how I came to think about this. Mm. In 2009, I went on my first climate expedition to the Antarctic, mm. and it was just an incredible experience. We had, you know, climate scientists, naturalists, biologists, leaders. Uh, I was their sustainability expert. And when we came back, Robert Swan, who is the, the expedition leader, he said, you have a real responsibility mm. when you go back to the North. And, um, and that is to tell the story and to engage people and to help them understand what they as an individual can do. Mm. So I remember I pulled together um, a few dozen of my friends and family and I gave a talk. And, you know, with the, the incredible photos and videos from this trip. And at the end of it, there was complete silence. And I thought, oh, I put them to sleep. Um, but then one woman raised her hand and she said, what can I do? Hmm. And that crystallized for me that we have three choices when we get hit with, you know, this is our reality. You can see it and step back and say, mm -hmm. I can't do anything, mm -hmm. you know? It is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can step forward and follow another leader and contribute what you can. Mm -hmm. Or, and this has always been my choice, storm the door and do whatever you can. Mm -hmm. And to keep that positive forward, you know, going towards uh, motion and engaging others and learn along the way. And, um, just one other element, uh, after Trump was elected and, you know, we had just finished with the Paris Climate Accord and John Sturman, who's a climate uh, uh, guru at MIT, he wrote a piece on what he thought the four potential scenarios were for our commitments to the Par uh, Climate Accord uh, with Trump administration coming in. And I wrote back to him and I said, given that, what do we as leaders, as individuals, what do we need to do over the next four years? And he said, we have to tell stories of success, no matter how big or how small, but it's through stories when we begin to shift people's mental models. Mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me. There are so many amazing things happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to elevate those stories. That's what inspires people. We can do this. We have the technology. Do we have the will? Mm, I love that. I love stories that begin to shift people's mental models. And that really is how we've transmitted wisdom and learning since the dawn of time, really, is storytelling and how important that still is. I, I think about Brene Brown's famous quote that stories are data with a soul that you're transmitting data with a soul, with something that people can be impacted by and feel. And they're not going to remember all the numbers, but they'll remember how they felt after your, at the end of your talk. That's right. And that's, that's what right. gets them to move to yeah. action. I remember. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, when I was still at Nike, a colleague of mine, Sarah Severn, she and I were <clears throat> invited to 
um, present a case, a business case to University of Virginia graduate students for a one week intensive. And I was just getting ready to launch our yoga business. And so we presented this case and, and um, we wanted sustainability baked throughout. And their challenge was they broke up as teams and they had four days, four and a half days to really put together a business case and pitch it to us. Mm. And the winning pitch, we were going to bring that team out to Nike campus to present to Nike executives. And the team that won, uh, the youngest uh, woman in the group, she was chosen to lead the, the conversation. And she gets up and stands in front of all the Nike executives. And this is her opening comment. You drank your Kool-Aid and you drank ours too. Shame on you. That got their attention. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and so to have that courage mm -hmm. to say that when, you know, a lot was on the line for them, mm -hmm. that's what we need. Mm -hmm. and, and as we talk about leadership uh, that's needed today, you know, joy, love, laughter, play, um, seeing the interconnectedness, the commitment, the collaboration to tell the truth, to have the courage mm -hmm. uh, and to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. That's how we describe leaders today. Let's go there next, because as we both know and have talked about, collaboration isn't always pretty. And it, it, it actually means having the uncomfortable conversations and uprooting you know, the things that we don't want to address and talk about often to really get to real collaboration with people. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've had some powerful examples, even internally in your organizations around diversity and inclusion and what have you. I'd love for you to share a, a meaningful story that you've, how have you used collaboration and real tools to bridge divides in, in organizations you've been part of? Right, right. Well, you know, one thing that has become very clear around collaboration uh, and think about you know, times in your own life where you've shown up with certainty mm. versus curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to do these days. We need to suspend our certainty, our need to be right and to be curious. And that's where, you know, even within the spiritual divide, this is where shifting our own consciousness and showing up with empathy so that we can see the situation from another's perspective, not just our own. And, um, you know, one of the stories around collaboration and looking at these complex challenges, I learned from a woman who ran the Boston Health um, Initiative. And this was back in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you can't solve a problem, enlarge it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's many ways to enlarge it, enlarge it by collaboration, but that's actually how they discovered HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And so collaboration to me is, again, if you think about it through a seeing a system, uh, before you can transform a system, you have to be able to see it. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to bring in all the voices that represent the different parts of the system. And that's certainly what we did at Nike when we were first starting on the sustainability journey. And by doing that and, and literally making the map, the system visible, and then overlaying these 20 
your goals, then you can step back and really understand where do I, where do we have control? Mm. Where do we have influence? Mm -hmm. And where do we have impact? Mm. And then that gives you a sense, a clue as to, okay, well, if I only have influence here, then who does have control? Are there voices in the room? Mm -hmm. So that's one example of how collaboration grows and grows and grows. Mm. I love that. And are there any other practical tools you can give leaders out there, people who are hearing this message? Uh, they might have teams where there's clearly a divide amongst their teams and challenges that way. And, or even like you said, having to work with competitors, like that's a, that's a mm -hmm. interesting one. Like, how do you, like uh, any other tools that you've seen that have been really successful in collaborating and having those courageous conversations, um, leaning in, being curious, like you said, being coming from vulnerability, which is traditionally hard to do in the business space where you're supposed to have the answers when you're the leader often. That's mm -hmm. kind of what's been programmed out there. Um, so it does take a courageous leader to break that you know, identity and say, okay, let's not know. Let's start off from that place, actually. Um, right. Any other tips or um, takeaways you can offer that you think would be helpful for people listening today? Well, I would uh, direct people to the Academy's website. Um, there are four associated websites. One is the System Leaders Field Book. Mm. And so as we have you know, worked with building the capacity of leaders around the world, um, we look at tools in four buckets. Um, tools and practices and frameworks that really focus on self because all change starts with self and, and really understanding how we influence and impact systems around us and our own cultivation practices to grow as a leader. So there are many tools in, in that uh, bucket and then tools and practices and frameworks that address team. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the larger organization and then ultimately the system. So it's the system leaders field book. And uh, we, we tapped into many, many different uh, methodologies. So not just mm. system tools, organizational learning, but Otto Sharmer's U uh, theory, um, appreciative inquiry, mm -hmm. uh, social emotional intelligence. So we draw from many different methodologies. We said, you know, we're agnostic as to where they came from, but mm -hmm. to actually curate them in a way that are accessible for people who, you know, they may want to learn more about how do we work better as a team. Mm -hmm. So that's a great resource. And that's on the Academy for Systems Change website? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Academyforchange.org. Academyforchange.org. And then at the top, you'll find a tab for the, the field book. Okay, perfect. That's a great resource. Um, I want to turn over to a couple audience questions here and just remind everyone while we have Darcy live, this is a great time to forward your questions, um, over on, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, or here on our live Zoom call. So um, one of them is from Fatima Zara. She asks, from your experience, how can we start to nudge the narrative change to steer away from competitive towards collaboration? Because that's, that is the current zeitgeist still. How do we nudge it in a different direction in a way that actually has influence and, and potency that way? We found that, you know, there's often my way, your way, 
But then where do we agree in the middle? Where can we both benefit mm. from uh, collaborating? And a quick um, example story when I think it may be the first time Nike collaborated with its competitors. Uh, there, there's a particular chemical that's used on the manufacturing lines for footwear mm. that are uh, not healthy for humans. Mm. And I have personal experience with that. So they're called volatile organic compounds. And so as we work to replace VOCs with water-based compounds, we realized that if we implemented them in the production of Nike product, we wouldn't actually solve the problem because at that time, Nike's would, and, and these footwear factories, you know, employ 50, 60,000 people, mm. but Nike's would be running down one line, Adidas in a line right next to Nike's mm. Reebok. And so we had to bring together ah. and our head that Nike did this had to bring together, invited the chemists from all the, our competitors together to share our four years of R&D and investment so that we could actually solve the problem. Wow. So that's when you get into that free competitive space mm -hmm. uh, and you can, you can actually make a big difference. And I'm getting how what you said earlier, if there's a problem, how do you zoom out and, and go larger uh, and see the bigger picture, right. right? So not just getting locked into my quarterly profits <laughs> and only seeing things from that perspective, but like, wait a minute, what's the impact of the earth that we're having? Why are we doing this? Let's look at the bigger picture for our sustainability as a company and for the whole industry and everything. And so I really get what you're saying now about how that needs to, when there's that problem that needs to be solved sometimes by stepping back that way. That's right. And water is another big challenge, not just in the sports and fitness industry, mm -hmm. but if you look at our reliance on water in a lot of different industries, uh, I'll take the apparel industry. Mm -hmm. It's very water intensive and it's also, uh, apparel is also often made in water stressed countries. Mm -hmm. And so how do you collaborate in that pre-competitive space to come up for example, with water-free dyeing systems, hmm. um, because you don't sell water in your product, but it's it's embedded in it. So that's another example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, funny because I mean, not funny, but just I don't think about that. I don't think about water used in products and the impact of that. But of course, that is one of the biggest probably strains on our water supply there is, uh, besides direct consumption. That's right. So I'll give you an example. And you can Google this, you know, anything that you love, but how many t-shirts, cotton t-shirts do you think you own? I think I own, I'm going to guess 12. Okay. Then multiply 12 by 700 gallons of water. Oh, that's going to be a big number, Darcy. <laughs> yes. Uh, a pair of jeans is 2,700 gallons. So my 12 t-shirts are 8,400 gallons right there. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So it's oh, a lot of gallons. About that, you know, and multiply it by, yeah, family. Wow. Country. wow. Yeah. That is huge. And that also makes it more personal when we start to connect the data with our own story of how we're actually using our resources on a real life, everyday basis like this.
that's what right. brings it home to me when I, when that connects that way. That's right. That's your personal, you know, consumption patterns, your, your choices around lifestyle. Fortunately, there are so many companies and organizations right now that are really addressing that. So there are mm. really smart choices out there. Here's another question from Facebook. So you have a f several fans on STL, by the way, Darcy. So oh. <laughs> this, this audience member asks, the last time you were on STL, you spoke about this com concept of going from you know, zero, either zero or a hundred with relation to leadership and vision. Can you explain this a little bit more? Does zero or a hundred get in the way when trying to collaborate? That's a great question. The, the, essence of the zero to or a hundred was what do we want to take to zero and what do we want to take to 100 and when I started with that it was around the waste toxic chemicals and closed loop systems and just think about the difference in your own mindset and how you think about okay I want to decrease the amount of waste that we create every year by 50%. Just think about, mm -hmm. you know, solutions that might start coming up. Mm -hmm. Now think about the difference, say, we want to eliminate all waste. That moves you from a problem solving orientation, how do I reduce it by 50% to a redesign model how do I rethink everything? Mm -hmm. And it really does shift how you think about it. What do we want to take to a hundred? Love, health, you know, what do we want to take to zero? Poverty, injustices. Mm -hmm. And so by, you know, choosing those extremes, it forces you to think differently. Okay. That makes sense. And then of course, collaboration comes from there um, to work on that together but you were saying, how do you shift the framework? How do you shift the frame of how you're thinking about it? And that actually is so upstream Then everything downstream from there is able to align with that new frame, if you will. That's right. And, and the way we often talk about it, we, um, Peter Senge, he, he actually taught me this, but when you're in a problem solving orientation, how are we gonna reduce waste by 50%? Uh, you actually go into a re reductionistic siloed thinking uh, mode. And when you flip that to the redesign, the, the creative orientation, the innovative orientation, it's yes. a subtle shift, but it, it has a big impact. I can feel that. And that's exciting because it allows room for possibility and opportunity versus just getting stuck in the, the problem. And I think that's where it gets so the resignation shows up in the room when you're just so hyper-focused on the problem and the issue. And then you forget, wait a minute, what's a way we can step back and think about this from a different language and a different perspective mm -hmm. that's, that that's opens right. up different doors of possibility. So do questions, very simple questions often open the door to things you could never have imagined. What's one of your favorite questions in those contexts? Uh, well, I'm sorry to be going back to so many Nike examples, but it's really where I cut my teeth. And when we were looking at this waste issue to create one pair of shoes to sell, we created about one shoe worth of waste. Ah. And 
think about that. If you're selling, you know, at that time, 300 million pairs of shoes, that's a lot of waste, material waste. And so we used to put together, you know, a baggie that held one shoe's worth of material. And we'd walk around and say, see, this is what we're mm. landfilling and incinerating. Mm. Why do we make three shoes to sell two? And one of our designers said, why do we make three shoes in one? So he flipped the question. I, I said, what do you mean? He said, and I won't go through the you know, technical aspects of footwear, but essentially there are three layers in running shoes, as an example, um, the way they used to be designed. Well, that started this whole project around weaving a shoe that was just one layer and literally created zero waste. But at that time, we couldn't mass produce it. It didn't really work. It cost a uh -huh. ton of money. Um, but we were onto something and over 13 years perfected that process. Mm, that's cool. So by asking a, the different, a different question, by flipping it on its head and being more counterintuitive in those ways, that opens up that new creative, innovative space. And that's the curiosity versus mm. certainty as well. Right. right. Exactly. Another question also from Fatima Zara asks, um, what are best practices for fostering intergenerational allyship through principles of collaboration and complementarity? Wow, great question. I'd love to hear how she would answer that. Um, but I think one of the first principles is invite them into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Invite them in now. You know, they are engaged. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was in a 16-year-old woman uh, who was very engaged in climate. And in a conversation, um, actually, she was 14 when we first started the conversation, shared with me that she wrote a book, If Nature Had a Voice. Mm -hmm. And we got to talking, and, and she's now the one who inspired the, the Our Future uh, Climate Project out of the Netherlands with the 14 to 18-year-old girls. But as we started talking, I said, you know, there's an opportunity. I'm going back to the Antarctic in November of 2021. I would love to have you join so that you can interact with these other climate leaders from around the world and really get into the slipstream of the conversation and, you know, start to um, build her. So just inviting them in and the other thing that I've learned, there's a lot of value in reverse mentoring, mm. you know? So mm. it's not just the oh, elder like mentoring the youth, but vice versa, because they see the world from a very perspective. Um, could, you say, could you say more about that? Yeah. Because I don't, you don't hear about that as often, about reverse mentoring. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard that term. Um, how do you, because huh. often there's going to be a power differential typically in a mentoring relationship. How do you frame that up to even have people be open to, hey, guess what? Switch now. <laughs> you're you're going to mentor them. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you frame that up in right. whether it's in workshops or whatever that, or that, what, what does that look like? I'm curious. Well, another example, um, so many interesting things happened while I was at Nike, but we brought together the top, you know, the, the top 12, 13, 14 um, executives at Nike. And we paired them up 
with 12, 13, 14, high potential, under 30, under five years at the company. And we literally paired them up and posed the same questions to them. And, you know, the executive would answer from their perspective. And then the under 30 would. And some of the anecdotes that came out of that, um, you know, where some of the executives were just in tears, they, they were like, I had no idea because they only saw it from their perspective. Mm -hmm. I see. And it can, if, if you're open, mm -hmm. if you remain in that vulnerable space, which is difficult for some, uh, it's a very, very powerful uh, experience. You know, one thing that um, I sometimes do with leaders that I work with in order to have a little more of that uh, two-way mentoring dialogue, as you're mentioning that, is to have a leader go to their team and say, hey, what do you think is one of my leadership blind spots? Mm -hmm. What do you think is one of the things that I'm not seeing uh, about the team, about you, about our direction? And I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Mm -hmm. And actually coaching them to be curious and to be open where maybe that the reason I'm giving them that assignment is because they haven't been curious. Um, and so leaning into the discomfort of that, but also learning from their team and learning from their people. And, um, and I think that that's a really powerful moment when a leader genuinely wants to know. That's right. And there has to be a high level of trust mm -hmm. that there won't be any backlash. Right. That's Otherwise, right. it's just a superficial exercise. That's a good point. The retaliation fear. That's right. right. Um, one of our last burning questions, Darcy, is also from Facebook. And uh, this person asks, if you're working with someone with whom you're having difficulty reaching common ground, are there any specific steps you take or questions you ask to grease the wheel for collaboration? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it goes back to being in a very generative listening space to truly hear what the other person is saying. And I, I experienced that firsthand with a designer um, at Nike that I had worked with for years, but we had really hit a point where we couldn't budge the other one and we had to come to a resolution very quickly. So I remember we went into a conference room and I said, just tell me your story from your side, from your perspective, mm -hmm. and, and also listen to mine. And after 30 minutes, you know, each one of us said something that oh, I never understood. What it came down to was uh, a designer's mindset is it can always change. It can always be improved. And from a mm -hmm. developer's mindset, We've got to get it to commercialization to get it, you know, retail on time. And, um, you know, that's the very high level, but it was that breakthrough. But you have to be, you have to be willing to hear the other's perspective. You know, as you say that, it really just so many things that, and so many conversations that I'm having, it all seems to often boil down to mindset on one level is like, how, you know, how coming back to what is our mindset in how we approach any situation as a leader, as a follower, as a person, as a colleague, you know, what is, the, how do we check our mindset and making sure we're coming from a more productive growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, you know, right. and I'm hearing that thread throughout this conversation in, in many ways also. That's right. That's right. 
So do you have any final words as we're wrapping up toward uh, women leadership, towards the women that might be listening on the show and also the men that need to hear this message also who are in leadership positions or have a, you know, obviously a, a wife, a mother, a daughter, they're intimately connected in all these ways. What, what, any last messages you want to share for what we need to hear right now and moving from now to 2030 and what needs to really shift in the next decade here? Uh, yes, given there's only a couple of minutes, uh, the Magnolia website is mm2030.org. And one of the things that I love about the evolution of our work is our guiding principles. And, you know, there's only seven or eight, but they're very, very meaningful to us. Um, we've also included um, videos of interviews of each of the Magnolias and each one of their stories around their own leadership journey are pretty amazing. Mm. Um, so yeah, there might be, and you know, their stories, their stories. So we're just getting started. And uh, if you're on clubhouse, join us tonight, join the conversation um, five o'clock Pacific. Everyone's invited men, women. So join the clubhouse tonight, five o'clock. And then it's mm2030.org. That's right. Okay. So please go there. Um, this is such a great cause. Uh, we want to see how we can support what you're up to also and any collaborations we can think of at Straight Talk Live. But all you Straight Talk Livers, please see how if you're moved by today's show and, and Darcy's amazing initiatives and all of her colleagues uh, that are doing this great work out there, uh, please see how you can support and check out what they're up to and how you might want to get involved. So thank you so much again, Darcy, for coming back as our, our one of our favorite return guests. And um, it's great to have you. and learn from you and, and speak and com converse with you as always. Wonderful. Thank you, Rick. And good luck to AF. Good luck to AF. And we'll have hopefully some news for you all in the next week or two about him. And then just really quickly for next week, we're going to be speaking with Rishad Tabakawala who's the former chief growth officer for the publicist group about how do you actually upgrade yourself in these challenging times? And we're going to get even deeper into things like mindset and what he has seen actually be effective in the workspace and beyond for how do we move our operating systems to where it needs to go. So thank you all so much, Darcy. Thank you again. And all you straight talk livers out there, go have some good conversations that move your, that move your worlds. Thank you all so much. Thank you.